Welcome to New Hope's teaching podcast. This is an excerpt from our Sunday morning service. Visit newhopepdx.org teaching for notes, worship, and church announcements. Stay up to date with our teaching series and events by downloading our app. Just text New Hope PDX app to 77977. Enjoy this week's lesson. All right, uh, how's it going, New Hope? Uh, great to see you. I'm joined here with uh, Pastor Denise. Denise, thanks for, for joining us today. Absolutely. Um, I think most of you New Hopers know we do these interviews, and for some of you, maybe that's odd. Maybe you're like, why don't you just preach, John or Denise? Why are you bringing in different people? And I think it's the value of, of Hokmav, like wisdom. And the, the, the gentleman we'll, we'll introduce to you in just a second is full of that and we try to get men and women in here that know more than we do Mm -hmm. Um, so that's hard for you Denise because you know a lot it's very (laughs) easy for me to get people that know more than I do so as we go through books we're using scholars that have studied these books and learned how to study these books to guide our teaching and our preaching and we have I think it's a gift I hope you see it that way of inviting these folks in for new friendships and for interaction to learn from them so today we have Dr. Tim Gombas. Uh, Tim is a professor of New Testament at Grand Rapids Theological Seminary. I, I think, Tim, you consider yourself a Pauline scholar. I don't know. You can push back on that if you don't. Uh, you've also written, I think, a newer book on or commentary on the Gospel of Mark, I saw, uh, with Scott McKnight. I think he's the editor of that series, um, which is the guy I'm studying under. Uh, Tim got his PhD from University of St. Andrews, which I'm super jealous um, of, of I, if I could do my PhD, which I'm too old for that now, I would do it at St. Andrews. I've, I've, I've friends there and, uh, and I've heard such great things. So anyway, I'm, I'm jealous and it looks so beautiful. It's like a place I want to go and just study and heaven on earth, man, play golf and stuff like that. Um, Tim is a native of Chicago, mm. which I was just there for at, at Northern seminary to, mm-hmm. to do a week of studies and a big Cubs fan. I don't even know how, how are they doing this year? Tim? Cubby blue microphone. Yeah, are the Cubs doing well? What's the... Yeah, they've had an unexpectedly really good start. And uh, in the last 10 games are showing up as the team they were supposed to be, which is not good at all. So all right, it's well, uh, well. it's going to be not the best year. Well, if we have space, we can lament and give you space to <laughs> lament a little bit. So uh, I'm, I'm told I, I pulled this off uh, some website, uh, Tim, but you, uh, you, your hobbies are golf and hiking. So we would definitely share the hiking deal. Um, we're about to head to Hawaii, so I hope to do some hiking. And That's I don't cool. play golf, so uh, but I like watching it. And then you have a blog, Faith Improvised, which. I really, or, or not, or not a blog, a podcast rather. Um, I really enjoy your podcast. So I think That's one great. of the things Thank I'm you. most impressed by is that you don't have anybody else with you. So um, it's like a stream of consciousness podcast, which is which is awesome. Like you just start to talk about I think anything that comes into your mind on that subject, which is impressive so yeah i'm just i'm stunned anybody bothers to pay attention. But well, it's awesome. I yeah. really enjoy it's it. Helpful and for I, me to get, get my thoughts together. Good. Well, I often chuckle as I'm listening to it. Um, so I encourage everyone to check out uh, Tim's podcast. 
And then um, you've written a number of different books, and, and one we're going to explicitly move towards today called The Drama of Ephesians. And then uh, we have a personal connection, and Nijay uh, Gupta is a good friend, and he, he serves with us in the city here and has spoken at our church, and we've interviewed him. And when I was preparing for Ephesians, I, I often go to him because he seems to know everybody. And I'm like, all right, who are the best Ephesians people? Mm-hmm. And he mentioned Lynn Kohick, who is his dean now, and, and then he goes, but Tim Gomes' book is just unbelievable. He's like, you gotta, you gotta get into that. So uh, thanks to Nijay for connecting us. So let's let's have me shut up and then Tim start talking. Right? Okay, that's sounds probably, good. That's we want to hear from Tim. We love hearing from you too, John. <laughs> Thank but, you today. So, okay. so Tim, I'm guessing you didn't, as a kid, grow up thinking like I want to be a New Testament scholar. So like, what's been that brief journey of you know growing up and becoming a New Testament scholar? Yeah, I had no intention at all of being a scholar nor reading books ever. Uh, or, you know, wanted to get out of school and study as much as possible. Honestly, I just wanted to be up through high school. All I wanted to do was play baseball and golf and uh, thought I might have a career in the golf industry in some way. Uh, When I was in college, I just couldn't get enough of uh, reading my Bible, studying my Bible, and uh, was not like a Bible student officially. And... um, was thinking about either going to law school or grad school in philosophy. And someone mentioned to me the possibility of seminary. And I was like, seminary. And, uh, but I went and just, I could not get enough. And uh, at a certain point in, in schooling, you sort of have to think about what you're going to do for like a job at some point. And um, I thought, you know, what a great way to just continue studying for a lifetime uh, by teaching. So really I kind of fell into it and I I love it, but I love it, uh, because it's a venue for my learning and exploration. Not like, I feel like I've got, you know, something to say to anybody. Um, I really love being a fellow student of the students that are here and sort of the responsible lead student responsible for all of our corporate learning. So I like approaching things from that perspective. Keeps me hungry. Yeah, I think you're listening to some of your podcasts, reading your books. You seem like a curious person. And uh, I always like hanging out with curious people. And you seem open to exploring new ideas and pushing towards the truth. I did uh, forget to mention earlier, you have a family. So three children yeah. and a wife. So I want to I wanna give a shout out to them. I know they've played a key role in your journey. Um, you, the book we've really dug into here, The Drama of Ephesians, um, what led you, I'm sure you get lots of opportunities or your curious mind takes you down a lot of different rabbit holes and different areas of study. What led you? Was that was that a, a publishing company coming and saying, "Hey, will you write a book on it?" Or was was that one of these curious trails you were following that led you to write this book? Yeah, you know, I was doing college ministry in the '90s, and uh, I taught through it one year, and then a couple years later, was found I was just discovering a lot of new stuff in there that I hadn't seen before, so I taught through it again. And when I went and did my PhD, uh, I was going to do a certain aspect of Ephesians, but came to find out that there was a lot of disagreement over what the whole you know, overall structure of the letter might be and was able to do my dissertation on the entire letter, which is just so cool just to spend, you know, four years in one Pauline letter. And um, I uh, did my program in this medieval town, a big picture of which I'm looking at right now. I mean, just as honestly, it's heaven on earth. And we lived a mile outside of town. And uh, Brits in towns that size walk 
And we had just moved there in 2000 from Los Angeles where you didn't walk anywhere. You're always in a car. And I kind of fell in love with hiking and walking. And I walked to and from my office every day and was just chewing on Ephesians and reflecting on it. And um, I could not help but think about, all right, what does this mean for how Sarah and I communicate with each other? What does this mean for how uh, Jake and I talk to each other, or Maddie and I talk to each other, or how we resolve conflicts with the, with the with the boys or you know with the kids, and um, those kind of questions um, just helped me to see that I wanted to not only obviously finish my doctorate, but communicate the richness of Ephesians to a wider audience. Mm-hmm. And uh, it took me several years after I finished my dissertation to actually write it, but um, uh, was able to kind of bring it together into that format and communicate some of the lessons that I, you know, the practical lessons I feel like I learned during those years of reflection. That's awesome, Tim. I think similar to you, I fell in love with God's Word as a teenager and just Mm -hmm. ate it up and just couldn't get enough. And Ephesians has always been a favorite book of mine. In your book, you argue that we should read Ephesians as if it's a drama. And that's another love of mine. I love that. So can you just tell us a little bit about that? Talk to our congregation about how that came into being in your thinking about Ephesians. Yeah, I had read an essay uh, by Kevin Van Hooser um, right about the time that I was doing my dissertation, and he framed theology in terms of um, uh, uh, an acting troupe, acting out the script of Scripture. And... um, Right when I thought of that metaphor, I was like, that's that's really problematic. Uh, we're not just playing Christian. We are Christian. This isn't just some fake reality. I mean, this is the truth. But I realized that the framework that I had was so narrow. Like, I read the Bible. I apply it. And I had a too narrow view of what it meant to actually be an actor. Like, if you are an actor, you you have to so know the identity of the character that you're playing so that you can enter into it. And we all know these stories of, of um, you know, famous actors, sometimes they're tragic, uh, that so enter into the character that they have trouble coming out of it. Or, you know, and um, there's a sense in which that lens helped me to see that we need to be more intentional about understanding who we are in Christ who we are as Christian people, and and what is the character of the story that we inhabit uh, so that we can sort of faithfully play these roles. And I think it was a natural fit for Ephesians because Ephesians was a circular letter that Paul wrote to a range of churches. So it's not, it's not like directed at like a problem or, you know, like Galatians. It's not directed at a specific challenge that a community is facing like Philippians. It's meant to be this kind of broad picture of what God has done in the world to, to inform churches how they can get in on that. And that lens kind of made some sense. That's great. And that answers some of my questions that I struggled with when I approached it. Even though I love drama, I didn't want it to be something that I, you know, a, a role that I just can put on and take off. So totally. your ex, you know, explanation was really helpful there. You also talk about Ephesians being apocalyptic. Can you talk a little bit about why you would place that in that genre? Yeah, uh, kind of like John was mentioning earlier, apocalyptic, we typically associate with revelation, you know, like all kinds of wild imagery and crazy things going on. And that kind of literature is apocalyptic, not because it's got crazy stuff happening, but because it's this kind of um, open window into the heavenly drama. Like, 
like how do we see into the heavens so that we can interpret life here on earth and there's a sense in which um ephesians actually provides that it's a heavenly interpretation of our earthly reality um in the heavens christ is lord and i think that our natural assumption is that that should mean that our lives are pretty cushy and like things go well for us and we don't suffer we don't face hardship or times of confusion or um, difficulty uh, but for paul he wants his audiences to see that yes christ is lord and christ uh christ's victory took the shape of the cross so um, in this kind of upside down way of seeing things, we need to see through like apparent reality to see what is really true and that our gospel shaped lives in this world will often take the form of suffering, will often take the form of persevering through hardship. Just like Paul had to face an extended time in prison facing that social shame. That's not a sign that in the heavens Christ is defeated. That's a sign that Paul's life is going according to the script. Because if God triumphed by losing, if Christ uh, won uh, the ultimate victory by dying, then it's often the case that faithful servants' lives will look socially shameful if that's how, you know, if that's the journey God chooses to take them on. Yeah, that's wonderful. I think that 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 single thought when I read it earlier in your book of seeing Ephesians through the apocalyptic lens has really opened it up for me. And, you know, we've been presenting this book to our church. It's like, hey, as we, we, we're calling our series Resurrecting Church. Mm. Uh, and so I think it's like the idea we emerge and we have to take a hard look at who we are and are we making disciples? How are we showing up in our community? We thought Ephesians was a great place to reset and start and get a vision of what we're called to be as the That's people cool. of God. Um, along those lines, the apocalyptic lines, you talk a good bit, and obviously, even a cursory reading of Ephesians reveals this, this cosmic battle, you know, because Paul kind of really invokes that, especially in, in chapter 6, but it's it's throughout, right? And in our post-enlightenment, Western, high science mind, right, we we don't really talk about that, or when we talk about it, it gets weird, and, and so there's like the, the two ditches we land in. Um, but I think you frame it up really well, kind of like that is a that is a reality, right? There is this heavenly realm that very much is interactive with our material world, and you know maybe some of the C.S. Lewis stuff in Screw Tape Letters, right? I think we we fall into some of those things where like we just the the evil realm is is the devil in red tights, and it's just kind of humorous and and joking, <laughs> or we just disbelieve in it, right? We just you know some totally. of the advice in that book just make them so that they don't believe in you, then you'll be really effective. Can you can you talk to a little bit about that you know that cosmic battle backdrop for Ephesians and what are some pastoral things you can invite our church into thinking more on a daily basis about how that comes into the lives without kind of going down the rabbit hole of crazy if that makes sense at all? Yeah, totally. It's not easy to do because we live in an age of spectacle and um, we expect you know all kinds of signs and wonders. Also. We live in a very individualistic age, and I mean, for the last at least 500 years, where we imagine that the story that's being worked out is the story of, of my life and Jesus, instead of the story of our community and Jesus. And um, so when we think about all these spiritual entities, we often imagine that they're sort of attacking me, or they're going to work on my brain, or um, sort of make my car not start, or make my daughter's flat tire not 
you know, make give her a flat tire, which I changed last night. <laughs> anyway, uh, um, but these these spiritual entities, these cosmic entities, are real, and um, they they appear at the beginning of Ephesians at the close in the in the passage that's quite well known, the spiritual armor passage, and then right smack in the middle in three ten. And actually, when you read Paul's letters, they're they're everywhere for him because they're so there's such significant actors on the stage in Paul's mind, even though in our modern age, as you were noting, John, we just don't think of them. But what they do in the world is they um, pervert ideologies and mindsets, like cultural mindsets and cultural practices, and distort our cultural imagination so that we, as a culture, end up walking in a variety of sinful patterns of life. And, um, yeah, the church's task is to identify what those are and make sure that we don't structure our communities according to them. And many of them are very subtle. Um, you know, things like, uh, you know, the, the promise of upward mobility, um, just assuming that it's, it's the natural course of life to sort of uh, get bigger and better and more. And we end up sort of passing judgment on one another and evaluating one another um, based on how much money you have or based on the symbols of your social status, um, all kinds of values related to gender, uh, loads of values and social practices related to uh, ethnicity, various nationalities, and especially in America uh, and in the West, race. Um, all of these dynamics are up and running in our culture and the powers and authorities um, insert into creation perverted ways of seeing one another and perverted ways of seeing the world and perverted ways of seeing our lives. And Christ's battle against these powers um, involves empowering the church uh, to identify them and resist them and not living according to them and to live in ways where we give all humans absolute dignity, or I should say, we recognize in all humans their absolute dignity, treat them as such, and we we are careful to sort of root out the idolatries that populate our corporate mm -hmm. lives. Yeah, I loved your clarion call. You mentioned it in the answer, but like in your book, you said the role of the church is naming and resisting the powers, and I love that. Mm -hmm. That's that's that invited me as a pastor that's shepherding a church into that of. Uh, provoking that more in my own spirit, but also in our congregation. Like, where can we, because of the way of Jesus, because of this apocalyptic vision and the illumination of the spirit, call things out that are not the way they sh are supposed to be? And yeah. say they're not the way they're supposed to be because they become ubiquitous. And so we're so used to them. And yet, no, that's not right. It, it could be better. We're not meant for that. And I loved that. So, so thanks for that. Yeah. And just from what both of you are saying, you're pointing out why it's so important for the church today to begin to read more as Ephesians particularly, since that's where we're at right now, but to read it as a community, that it was written to community and not individualism, that we, I don't know, I sure, certainly grew up with that uh, really strong. It's just about you. You've got to get this straightened out, and this is, you've mm. got to live morally for this reason. But can you expand, how do we how do we change the mindset, our mindset, the church's mindset, to, to read scripture, to read Ephesians as a community. Mm -hmm. Any kind of helps that you can think of that help us make that switch from individualism to community? Yeah, that's a great question, Denise. That's the challenge. And I, and I think we partly have to give ourselves a lifetime to figure it out because our entire lives 
and the, like really world culture, uh, certainly in the West, has been shaped individualistically for hundreds of years. So we're going against the tide in such a massive way. But um, the first thing is every New Testament letter, except for First and Second Timothy and Titus, is written to a community, and and all of the yous are you plural, and um, Ephesians was read by Tychicus to audiences that would have heard it sitting alongside each other. So when Paul thinks about being Christian, he only thinks about communities. He doesn't think about an individual being Christian. And I think we have to, um, I think about this all the time. When, whenever I talk about being Christian, I try, I, I, I try to be a cop of my own language and note when I'm, when I'm saying I, instead of when I'm saying we. And, um, when I think about myself as a Christian person, I'm always thinking of myself as a body part, not as a Christian. So, um, and, I mean, Paul doesn't use the language of Christian. All of his identity markers for being Christian are are um, dependent on relation. So, like a brother or sister, um, co-partner, co-servant, co-slave, co-laborer. Um, a body part. So, I mean, I'm always thinking about myself when I consider my Christian identity. I always, for some reason, think about an elbow. An elbow needs a shoulder. An elbow is responsible for a wrist. And um, in Colossians, Paul talks about how, or no, also in Ephesians, about how every body part receives life from the head, who is Christ, through the joints. So we need the joints. We like if you're an elbow, you need capillaries and blood vessels. And I'm not a biologist, so I'm going to stop naming things. I, don't, I have no <laughs> idea what body parts are, but we need each other, and we can't uh, we can't think about ourselves in isolation, which um, takes a it, it takes a lot of work. Yeah, that's helpful. And thanks for the grace on that to all of us. Yeah, I, I don't know if this was in your book. Or I read it somewhere else, but I've told our church the very thing that in the Greek, it, the, the you, you know, you read it singularly, it's plural, and we don't really have a good translation yeah. except our English friends from the South. Us. Y'all, right? They've totally. done it. Down South, they, they've okay. nailed it. So it's just, it doesn't really fit, right? In the no, term, y'all. We, could, we could try to make it a thing out here. I don't know. Okay. So I was, Tim, I was listening to uh, some podcast the other day, and I don't know if you know uh, Karen Swallow Pryor. She's a, a literature prof, and, you know, so they were interviewing her, and I, I think a lot of her, and this, this, uh, the person interviewing, I think it might have been on script. I can't remember. They said, you know, Karen, like when you when you survey the church, what's the biggest deficiency in the church? Mm. Very blunt question, and I was intrigued how she would answer. Mm. How would any of us answer? Right? We could we could have a choice, um, but she answered very quickly, and she said, "Lack of imagination." Oh wow! And I thought that was a very provocative answer, and it stayed with me and lingered with me in my own journey. I see that on display, mm-hmm. and in the American church, I can't speak with authority on the global church. They probably do it a lot better, but I, I look around, and, and I guess I can only speak appropriately of our church. But yeah, I, I think we do operate with this lack of imagination, uh, a scarcity mindset. Uh, we don't look into the abundance of God and what God's calling, and I think that's what Ephesians does. I think. When I started reading your book, you mentioned, even in this interview today, you've mentioned imagination already. You write about it in your different books. Uh, you said Ephesians expands the horizons of our imagination and worship is meant as we gather together on a Sunday to renew our imagination, mm-hmm. which is really awesome to think through. Can you talk a little bit about imagination? It seems like that's an important word to you as you explore what Paul's doing in Ephesians. Talk to us a little bit about expanding our imaginations. 
Yeah, unfortunately, we we think of imagination as like make-believe or fake or phony or something like that, or you're just imagining things. But our imagination is how we see the world, how we see ourselves, how, how I consider myself in relation to the world, how I see God as active or inactive. Um, you know, we can think in terms of sight or, or feeling or vision, but imagination is, I think, the broadest possible scope for all of that. And um, so Paul says in Ephesians 4, in Romans 12, I'm just trying to run through the places where he does this, um, he's constantly calling for his churches to have renewed imaginations. Yeah. And that, that's not like, okay, you thought this before you were saved, now you got saved, now you think this, you're good. But this is like a lifetime project for a community, like a generations-long project, to identify how has our culture corrupted our imaginations so that we see one another in corrupted ways or less than uh, scriptural ways? How has our culture corrupted our vision of who God is so that we associate Him either with our nation or with our cause or with our favorite whatever? And how has our culture corrupted uh, my conception of myself in the world? And 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 to really do the work of, of seeing how my imagination has been hijacked and um, infiltrated by you know, varieties of ideologies, and then range throughout Scripture and, and gain uh, familiarity with Scripture over 5, 10, 15, 30 years, and always have my imagination renewed um, according to scriptural categories. Like, I mean, I'll just, I'll be honest, but this is something I just was thinking about recently because um, issues of race and ethnicity and immigration are a big deal in our culture. And, um, well, um, many of our imaginations have been hijacked by either left or right, um, by a cause or by you know who's shouting the loudest and angriest on our, our either our TV screens or our phones or whatever. And I, I've tried to really be honest. I don't know if I could be really too vulnerable here, but I've tried to be really honest about how I, as an American white man, have been trained by my culture to see women to see black people, to see black women, uh, to see other non-white people, to see people of clearly other religions. And my town is quite diverse, actually, which is kind of a shock for the Midwest. And um, I've tried, my wife and I have had these conversations, like what what are the, the inherited fears and senses that we have about different people? And we, I think we need to learn to get comfortable to sort of make them explicit so that we can then take the next step and this is what I've been doing for like the last two months. I, I just see someone that is not like me in the grocery store or on the street or at a gas station. And I just say, I whisper, image bearer, mm. image bearer, image of God. Because I want to repopulate my imagination with a way of seeing that person who's other than me as having infinite value in the sight of God. And my sight of that person has to adjust you know, uh, I'm image of God and I, I, about myself even, I'm image bearer, that's image bearer. We are, we're partners in being uh, inhabitants of God's good world. Man, so that, I mean, that's such a killer answer, man. Yeah, we could just end right now. I'm, I'm, I'm ready. You're preaching and, <laughs> and you can totally be vulnerable with us, Tim. Yeah. I mean, actually we ask our people to be 70% vulnerable. We want them to <laughs> hide about 
30. No, I'm just totally kidding. Let's have these conversations. Yeah. It's yeah. a really wonderful answer. It is. I appreciate how you take the imagination and then bring it into some practical living it out, which Ephesians is trying to help us do. So thanks for that. Tim, if there is one or two things that we could grab a hold of from Ephesians for the American church, you know, what would those be? What stands out to you? Maybe you've just started talking about that with our... His eyes just got yeah, really I big. Know. With what's on He's the... like, how much time do you have? Oh, man. <laughs> That's why you I know, said just one or two. <laughs> I, I just think of the exhortation, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up as an offering and sacrifice to God. So um, I think in, in, in some ways having that as a mantra that we corporately and we individually have on our minds walk in love so what like what does love look like in in this instance in this conversation and it's going to look like gave himself up so what what are my agendas i have for other people to think like me or to be loyal to a, a cause as i am um and how can i specifically give up give up that expectation and give up for the sake of love for another person and I think also just the character of humility and um, in our culture of angst and anger and, you know, there's so many causes that we are sort of willing to kind of fight for and do damage for rhetorically or even physically. Um, how can we creatively see ourselves um, with genuine honesty as partners of one another? as creative and strategic lovers of one another, um, not as some kind of heroic effort of being Christian, but for our own corporate enjoyment of all the goodness that God has to give to us. We're not being heroic when we're Christian. We're receiving the greatness of the gifts that God has to give to us. So I want to read, uh, I think you have a, a follow-up question here, Denise, but let me read this quote. Um, I'm sure you remember writing this, maybe you don't, but this is one of my favorite quotes from your book, The Drama of Ephesians. The church is the gathered people of God who assemble to gain strength and who then wander out into the world to do good, to radiate the life and blessing of Jesus in practical ways. Mm -hmm. It's really beautiful writing for one, so thanks for that, Tim. Oh, cool. But like, it's captivating, again, my imagination as a pastor who's constantly wrestling with the Lord and on my knees thinking about what is the church called to be and probably feeling that we fall short and trying to find the way forward and uh, what a what a beautiful picture that we can step into gathered people we're assembling we're gaining strength it's not from ourselves and then I love that word we wander because that's I feel like that right but Tolkien said right all who wander not lost you know I have a t-shirt that says that so I think that wandering's good it's beautiful um, but to do good the tove uh, to radiate the life and blessing of Jesus in practical ways love that yeah if we could just do like a little bit of that I think we'd be good to go right I agree so Tim we're gonna press in just a little bit into your vulnerability with this question it's my, probably my question I've been most excited about to just ask you, you've spent this much time in Ephesians. What from this book has most impacted you personally in your following Jesus? Yeah, great question. Uh, that's not difficult to answer. Uh, really, the model of, of, um, of being a disciple that Paul sets of, of um, having a life shaped by the cross, cruciformity, um, that the triumph of God it, that Paul sort of narrates in chapter two, look when it hits life, when it shapes a life, 
and, and whenever Paul gives autobiographical comments in his letters, he, that's a model for how he wants a corporate community to, uh, to look. And he talks about his life as a life of great privilege. He's an apostle. He's the, the steward of God's message. But it's carried out in a position of absolute social shame. He's, a, he's incarcerated. And he delights in it because the logic comes out in 310. Um, when God accomplishes his work through somebody in a place of absolute weakness, God is glorified and he's able to sort of like um, stick it in the face of the defeated powers in the heavenly realms that he's actually their ascendant Lord, that he has defeated them. When we have happy and successful lives and we're really well off, uh, that's, that's fine, but that doesn't necessarily glorify God in any specific way. But when we've, we go through times of hardship or suffering or pain, or when we choose hardship or suffering or pain um, for the way that it can press us into the shape of the cross for our experience of resurrection power, then God is glorified. So cruciformity has, honestly, it's transformed our family life. It's transformed my friendships and my way of seeing myself. It's made me a far more uh, joyful person. It's shaped the way that I envision challenges that um, are uh, honestly on the horizon for me. Um, and it, in, in a way that's hopeful, uh, not, not necessarily in a hallmark hopeful way, like everything's going to be fine. It's like, actually, um, we might face some bumps here, um, but we're held on to. We're held on to by the Lord. And um, the more our lives look like a cross, the more we are in position to experience resurrection power. Great. Thank you for sharing that. That's pretty powerful. Yeah, we're, uh, we need to wrap up here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to merge my final two questions together because you, you introduced this term cruciformity. And that was, in, that was one of the questions I wanted to ask. Um, you've written uh, several books, but one of your other uh, popular level books, if that's an appropriate term, you know, that, that, meaning that most people who don't have a theological education could, could read it. Um, I've read parts of it, and I, I really want to dig in. It, it's it's amazing. It's called the power power and weakness, and I think that you're exploring Paul's vision for ministry that spans throughout his writings, as I understand it. But particularly tracking what you just said this this power dynamic and how powers everywhere we are, we everyone has certain amounts of power, and uh, how we use our power and how power can pervert us or power can be given away for greater good. And we see those things on full display at a macro level at all of our lives, at a national level, and certainly at a global level. This is not an essentially American problem. This, this, is, this is marked history in deep ways. And Paul, you know, sometimes it's hard to transition things from the first century to now. I don't think this is a difficult one, right? It looked different, but the same power plays and the power dynamics and the power games were happening in the first century that, that they are now. So I love this word, uh, cruciformity. I first heard it through, I think, Michael Gorman uh, wrote on it. And my professor, Scott McKnight, uses Christoformity, which I think is you know essentially the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of my last question, as I told you before we started, was to kind of send us out by, by preaching to us and by you know pastoring us. And it's going to be the same challenge. But I think 
maybe around this cruciformity thing, because uh, maybe it's likely for many people, that's the first time they've heard that phrase. And that's like, what is that? What does it mean? It's changed his life and his marriage and all that. So whatever you want to do with it, be led by the spirit, but talk to us. What does it look like for our church? As we say, <clears throat> go to the Lord's Supper today, right after this, and we say amen, and we go into the real living of life. What does it look like to be followers of Jesus who are, are living with a cruciformed mindset, a cross-shaped life? Mm. Preach to us a little bit. I give you permission. <laughs> yeah, uh, cruciformity is um, when when our lives take the shape of the cross, and um, uh, you would have expected that God's victory over His enemies would take the form of power and spectacle, and you know, be done by some impressive person. Um, and you might expect that preaching the gospel to the world would be done by an impressive person, someone in a, in a place of uh, social and cultural prestige and power. And th it's funny because even our imaginations are shaped this way. We imagine Paul as a powerful first century preacher uh, who would be like many of the famous preachers that you know we've had in our culture. Um, but the Corinthians, Paul recognizes their um, their complaints about him. They said uh, he talks big in his letters, but when he shows up, you can hardly hear him in the back. I mean, Paul was not—he um, was not the powerful figure that we often imagine, and his life was marked by suffering. Uh, but Paul saw in that great promise because, in his mind, well, I mean, he discovered this reality based on his reflection of Jesus on Jesus' teachings that um, if God poured out resurrection power on Jesus when Jesus went to the cross. And if Jesus' going to the cross was God's ultimate cosmic triumph, then lives and communities that take the shape of the cross will experience a flood of God's resurrection power. And we imagine that um, power is found in power. You know, power is found in self-assertion or domination or oppression or grabbing or grasping or striving. Um, but in God's upside-down logic, I mean, who wins by losing. That's how God operates. That's the wisdom of the cross. If God wins by losing, then our lives are flooded with God's joy and power when we take the shape of the cross. And that is going to always look like weakness. Um, that's going to look like um, acceptance of our own faults and failings. That's going to look like uh, acceptance of God's yes to us instead of trying to earn it. That's going to look like acceptance of all the good gifts that other people have to give to our community instead of maybe um, me clearing space for me to give my gifts to the community. Um, that's going to look like relating to others from a posture of invitation and waiting rather than uh, bulldozing my way through in relationships or um, asserting my desires. Uh, alternatively, for, for those of us that have self-protective, I'm speaking biographically here, for those of us who have uh, self-protective mechanisms of not expressing our own needs, it may be that cruciformity looks like in relationship expressing my desires and needs. Um, I think for every one of us, it's going to look a little bit different for, for those of us who are centered, um, and um, this might make some people upset, uh, for those of us who are centered by American culture like white men, this might mean... Um, working hard in, in social situations to center people who have been decentered, like women or people of color, um, immigrants, um, uh, 
and uh, to to be on the lookout in our culture to see who culture has marginalized or pushed to the margins and do the work of actually moving them toward the center or i should say do the work of discerning how the gospel is moving them toward the center um so I, cruciformity for me has meant a lifelong uh journey of creatively seeking to sort of renovate my imagination in a cross-shaped way realizing it's been uh, crafted by culture in a way that craves power, control, domination, and, and survival, basically. And the cross calls me to not survive, calls me to die. And um, paradoxically, when I do that, I live and, and not, and this is Paul, I live, but not I, but Christ. That's the mystery, is when we die together with Christ, we're also alive together with Christ. Um, so I guess I just would exhort you Take the 5, 10, 25-year-long journey of discovering just what God has called us to in having a community shaped by the cross. Realize that it will always look threatening. Who the heck wants to be on a cross? But what we will find is the miracle that that is the location where resurrection life is found. Mm. So beautiful, Tim. Yeah. Thanks for your gift of this interview, your wisdom, um, your book. It's going to linger with me. I'll oh, return you. it off, and I'm really grateful. And um, I'm going to ask you to close us in prayer. But before I do that, just one little cruciformity step for you, because I picked up that you maybe don't share your own needs. What's one way that our mm -hmm. church can pray for you? Oh, thank you. Um, pray for wisdom for me. There's, there's just a season coming up. Um, um, of some unpredictability in uh, for for me and for some of my colleagues, and um, uh, I want to think about how what it might look like to take the shape of the cross creatively and in hope in a season that is tempting me and my colleagues to sort of self protect and it, it's a, fe a fearful time, um, and so it's. The striving is how to, how to be hopeful and also uh, not naive. All right. I'd we appreciate will, that. I will pray, and I hope many of our church will pray. Can you can you close us in prayer by just praying over our church, New Hope? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks, Thank you. Father in Christ and by your Spirit, we give you great thanks uh, for all the goodness that you pour into our lives in Christ, uh, for all the love that you show to us, uh, for the fact that when we wake up, uh, your mercies are already there awaiting us. Thank you for the hope that uh, we find in the cross. And we thank you for all the goodness that you have prepared for new hope. And we pray for wisdom and creativity and discernment uh, as they seek to find those redemptive pathways uh, into which you are inviting them. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much, Tim. We're grateful. Hey, thank, thank you. you. It's been great to talk.